Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. I should like to thank those commanders and soldiers of the Wagner private uh, company who took the right decision to stop and go back and prevent bloodshed. Russia in crisis. The weekend mutiny by Russian mercenaries exposes Putin's vulnerability, forcing him to cut a deal with the man he had called a traitor just hours before. That man, hot dog vendor turned warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin, was apparently allowed to flee to Belarus. We're going to take a deep dive into what happens next for him and his Wagner group. And it's becoming increasingly clear that Republican voters don't care how corrupt their candidates are. Donald Trump's lead is actually growing in the crowded Republican presidential field. Make that make sense. But we begin tonight with a wild weekend and the unprecedented challenge to more than two decades of Vladimir Putin's grip on Russia. The armed rebellion has ended, but the uncertainty it sparked continues. The Russian warlord behind that attempted insurrection, Wagner Group leader Evgeny Prigozhin, remains out of sight. But he released an audio message today, claiming that he wasn't seeking to overthrow Putin. He called it a protest. But he renewed his criticism of Russia's military, saying his weekend march was a masterclass on how Russia should have carried out its invasion of Ukraine. His rebellion began late Friday after Prigozhin released audio and video messages claiming Putin's invasion of Ukraine was based on a lie. He then slammed Russian, military, R- Russian defense minister Sergei Shoigu, accusing him of ordering an airstrike on Wagner forces. By Saturday morning, the Wagner paramilitary troops had moved east from Ukraine into Russia and the city of Rostov-on-Don, a key southern military command center, before pushing north toward Moscow. Pogosian was last seen in public late Saturday, leaving Rostov-on-Don after he called an end to the uprising and turned back the soldiers he'd sent marching to within 125 miles of the Russian capital. Under a deal to end the revolt announced by the Kremlin, Pogosian would go to neighboring Belarus, where he and his soldiers would receive amnesty and charges against him would be dropped. But according to Russian media reports, the case against Prigozhin for mounting a rebellion remains open. In his first public appearance since Saturday, Vladimir Putin praised the rank-and-file Wagner mercenaries, but attacked their leader without naming him. The organizers of this rebellion this cannot but understand that they will be brought to justice. Everybody understands that. This is criminal activity, which is aimed at weakening the country, which, and this was a colossal threat. Putin followed up with a televised meeting with his defense and security chiefs, including Defense Minister Shoigu, the target of Prigozhin's criticisms. But despite Putin's attempt at showing strength, the weekend rebellion has raised major questions about both his grip on power and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Today, Putin blamed Ukraine and the West for the uprising, saying it is what his international opponents wanted. President Biden, meanwhile, addressing the situation for the first time today, stressed that the U.S. and Western allies had nothing to do with Prigozhin's mutiny. 
We gave Putin no excuse to blame this on the West or to blame this on NATO. We made clear that we were not involved. We had nothing to do with it. This was part of a struggle within the Russian system. President Biden said he'd spoken at length with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who in his own video addressed uh, own video address over the weekend, said Russia's internal turmoil only exposed Putin's weakness. Today, the world saw that the bosses of Russia do not control anything, nothing at all, complete chaos, complete absence of any predictability. I will say it in Russian. The man from the Kremlin is obviously very afraid and probably hiding somewhere, not showing himself. I am sure that he is no longer in Moscow. He calls somewhere, asks something. He knows what he's afraid of because he himself created this threat. All evil, all losses, all hatred. He himself who spreads it. Wow. Meanwhile, Prigozhin's mutiny also raises uncertainty about whether Wagner soldiers will remain a force on the battlefield in Ukraine. With analysts saying the Ukrainian military may be able to capitalize on the chaos and weakening Russian morale to make gains. Joining me now from Kiev, Ukraine, is MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi. Ali, my friend, it is always great to talk with you. This is fascinating. Um, you now have the monster turning on the master, as folks have said. Um, how is that playing out in Ukraine? Uh, in a few different ways, but mostly uh, Ukrainians are sitting there thinking it's probably good for them that their oppressor, that their invader is in some chaos. Uh, it's not clear, though, if you were a Ukrainian, just like if you were a, a, a pro-democracy Russian, that uh, Prigozhin was going to be a better option than Putin. In fact, Prigozhin's criticism of the Russian army is that it didn't do enough. It's not brutal enough in its war. It's not effective enough in its war. So he wanted a, a, a bigger, a more effective war in Ukraine. So Ukrainians are, are happy about a few things. A, there's a crack in the armor in, in, uh, in Russia, something that they always believe to be the case. B, those Wagner fighters are mostly not in Russia anymore. Most of them are gone. C, Prigozhin, who was really the tip of the spear in terms of the Russian invasion here, in terms of the ground war that was going on in the east, obviously he has nothing to do with the, the missiles that rained down on Kiev and the drones, but in terms of that ground war that had uh, you know drawn out to a stalemate, that was Prigozhin and his men. The reason Bakhmut uh, took so long to recapture was because of Prigozhin and his men. Uh, very interesting that Putin has now accused Prigozhin and his men of being failures in Russia, saying that this was an effort to cover up their failure. So the infighting in Russia generally speaking, is seen as good for Ukraine. There is one exception, and that is when a strong man is attacked, when a strong man is shown to be weak, what do they then do? In the case of Erdogan in Turkey, when there was an attempted coup against him, he took that as an opportunity to become more autocratic. Well, Putin's already autocratic, so what does he do? Does he rain terror on Ukraine to prove that he's as tough as he is? Uh, so there's uncertainty in Ukraine, but generally speaking, they're a few weeks into this spring counteroffensive. They've reclaimed about 130 square kilometers of land. That's it's not a lot. Uh, it's about 10 villages or hamlets, but they are making forward progress and they were feeling good about that forward progress uh, by last week. And now this has happened. So it tends to be having an energizing effect on Ukrainians and mostly those Ukrainian troops who've really not just run on uh, Western and NATO weapons and ammunition, but they have run on their own morale and the support in their own country. And that is bolstered today. So for the moment, 
It's very early to tell. It's early innings in this, but Ukrainians are feeling better than they were last week about the fact that something is very wrong in Russia. Yeah, I mean, I got to imagine it feels pretty good that the fighters who were actually the most lethal and most effective, they bounced out of there. And now basically yep. have, they have the disorganized, incompetent, low morale Russian troops left. And I think just based on listening to Zelensky, they feel like they could take them. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good day to be in Ukraine today. Ali Belshi, yeah. uh, can't wait to watch you later. You're going to be uh, on for an hour. You're the, the hardest working man uh, in show business here is Ali Belshi, because you're going to be on for an hour, full hour, 8 p.m., Live from Ukraine, um, from Kiev. Thank you, my friend. Stay safe. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. And it's called Russia in Crisis. So y'all be sure to watch that. But let's really quick keep this going by bringing in former CIA Director John Brennan, MSNBC senior national security analyst, also a friend of the show. So, uh, I, you know, the question that I am <laughs> dying to ask you, sir, is what did the CIA know and when did they know it? Because, you know, there is, you know, a, a sense that there was some understanding inside the U.S., inside the CIA, that something was up with the Wagner Group vis-a-vis Russia. Um, to your understanding, is this something that the CIA would have known about and what would they have, would they have wanted it to happen? Is this something where the U.S. was rooting for a coup? Well, I think, Joy, that uh, I'm pretty confident that the CIA knew a lot more than you and I knew about what was happening inside of Russia and Ukraine. And they were keeping President Biden fully informed as developments were unfolding. And I think we have to show a fair amount of humility in terms of trying to describe what happened over the last several days and also what may happen. But what is very clear is that the situation, I think, is still very unsettled. It's very dynamic. And we don't know exactly what Putin is going to do in order to try to regain control, because clearly his very public admissions about this rebellion uh, and uh, the threat that it posed to the Russian state is unprecedented. And so I think what he's trying to do is figure out now how he can preserve the military capabilities of the Wagner Group in Ukraine and in other places while decapitating its leadership that clearly was engaged in this uh, rebellion against uh, Moscow. But again, I still think we, we have a lot to learn about why Prigozhin's forces turned back, what type of deal was struck, whether or not Putin is going to follow through on any commitments he might have made in order to get Prigozhin to stand down. So I, I think the coming days are really going to give us a lot more uh, sense of exactly which way this is going to go. But we should make no mistake about it. Prigozhin is a war hawk. He's a bloodthirsty war hawk. And this is a threat to Putin from his right wing, his hard right wing. And so there are a lot of scenarios here that can still unfold that are not going to be favorable, I think, to uh, our national security interests. Right. I mean, the reality is right. I mean, and number one, I, a two part question for you. Number one, can he possibly keep him alive or out of prison? Right. I mean, he spoke out against the military operation or whatever the euphemism they use for it. He said it was based on a lie. That's supposedly illegal. He's also a threat. He has his own army uh, and that uh, it doesn't seem like Putin controls it. He controls it. Even though he's out of the country, is it possible that he can even be left alive? So that's number one. And then the second part is, if let's just say this coup le led to another coup, who would even fill that vacuum? Because we certainly don't want that guy running Russia. He's no better. Well, Prigozhin clearly became a cult-like figure, certainly within the Wagner group, which is why I think Putin is not just going to 
eliminate him immediately uh, because I think he is trying to make sure that the Wagner Group, which has played such an important role in Ukraine, is going to remain a fighting force. Uh, but I don't think that what uh, Prigozhin has done will ever be forgiven or forgotten by Putin. So I think Putin will ultimately exact his revenge against Prigozhin at the, at the time that he deems most appropriate. Uh, but if this rebellion was, uh, you know, was able to move into Moscow, and Putin was pushed out. Uh, I think it's unclear uh, exactly who would come to the fore. It probably would be somebody from uh, the right wing of, of Russian uh, establishment. Uh, it'd probably be a cabal initially. I mean, there are some individuals uh, at the top who have been, you know, long-standing uh, advisors uh, and part of the inner circle of Putin. But I think they recognize that they're in the accountability bucket as well. And so I don't think that uh, one of those who are as closest to Putin would take over. It might be somebody from the outside, uh, outer ring, uh, military, but somebody who had to, who'd be able to control the military, security, intelligence services. That is so critically important. But again, yeah. I don't think we're at that point yet, but we may see it happening in the not too distant future. Yeah, let's not forget they have nukes. Now, let, let, let me read you what a very heroic man, Vladimir Karamurza, who I don't know how he's able to get these out. He wrote a piece in the Washington Post, an op-ed, and he talked about the West's own responsibility for some of what we've seen. He's, and he wrote, when Putin launched um, ever more active efforts to dismantle Russia's democratic institutions, we in the Russian opposition naively thought the free world would express criticism. Instead, American presidents of both parties applauded Putin's rise. The architects of the Western policy of embracing Putin ignored two fundamental warnings from history, that internal repression in Russia always translates into external aggression, and that appeasing an aggressor always leads to war. And you can just look at the timeline from the uh, annexation of Georgia, the country of Georgia in 2008 during George W. Bush, all the way through Crimea's, the attack on Crimea during the Obama administration, to the invasion of Ukraine. They just have gotten worse and worse and worse, given the fact that now they are worse, terrible, unstable, and it occupying a country that doesn't want them there. This looks like it just gets from bad to worse. What is the outlook that we should have on where Russia goes in the next several years? Because it looks like it could become even more unstable and more dangerous. Well, I think it could, but also I think we have to recognize the limits to our influence and ability to shape events. I understand what that individual is saying, but I think it is overstated. Uh, that we, we have recognized that uh, Russia is a very big, powerful country that has a strategic nuclear weapons arsenal. We are not in the business of trying to shape politics from inside. Look how difficult it was for us to try to get Afghanistan on the right path or Iraq on the right path. And uh, I think we have to be very, very uh, aware that uh, we have limited influence in terms of which way this is going to go, which is why President Biden, I think, rightly pointed out that we had no role in this internal combustion that is taking place in Russia. I think we need to speak in favor of de democratic values and principles and those who are advocating of that in Russia. But I don't think we want to become the manipulator and exploiter uh, internally there of what's going on in the country. That, that's why we dig you, John Brennan. You, you used to run the CIA, but you have that humble, let's not be out here trying to police the world attitude. I, I really like it. I think it's good to hear. And I, I love hearing that coming from you specifically, sir. John Brennan, thank you very much. Up next on the readout, uh, from hot dog vendor, hot dog vendor to commander of one of the most powerful private armies on the planet. Who exactly is Yevgeny Prigozhin? We will break it down when the readout continues. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, 
which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. At the center of this weekend's armed rebellion in Russia is Yevgeny Prigozhin, who, despite presenting perhaps the greatest threat to Vladimir Putin's regime that we've ever seen, was actually at one point one of Putin's closest allies. The two have quite the history. Believe it or not, Prigozhin was actually a hot dog salesman back in the 90s after spending time in a Soviet prison. Years later, he owned several restaurants, including one in St. Petersburg, that was a favorite spot of a young ex-KGB spy named Vladimir Putin, which led Prigozhin to earn the nickname Putin's chef. From there, Prigozhin transformed from restaurateur to warlord in just a matter of years. In 2014, he founded the Wagner Mercenary Group as a way to support Russian forces in the war in Donbass. Not too long after that, Wagner began operating in other countries like Syria, where they supported pro-government forces there, as well as several African countries. Not only did Prigozhin use his private army to prop up dictators, receiving gold and blood diamonds as a reward, but they were also accused of committing several human rights abuses. Prigozhin also founded the Bot Farm that, according to the Justice Department, is responsible for sowing disinformation in the 2016 U.S. election, ultimately helping Donald Trump take the White House. And then last year, as Putin's army struggled on the battlefield, Wagner supported Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. Prigozhin mainly recruited convicts, promising pardons in exchange for their service, which ultimately led to thousands of their deaths. In the past few months, tensions began to increase when Prigozhin went on several angry rants on the Telegram app, taking aim at some of Russia's top military generals for allegedly denying his fighters ammunition. That anger ultimately boiled over into the events that unfolded this weekend. Joining me now is Mark Polymeropoulos, former CIA chief of operations for Europe and Eurasia and MSNBC national security analyst. Mark, thank you so much for being here. So I just want to start just from the basics here. The Wagner Group, um, which apparently the name was inspired by the composer, although it has nothing to do with him and his family, I'm sure, would like uh, me to say that. They operated basically. Can you just explain how they were able to operate? Because Russia doesn't have a Second Amendment. It's not like anybody can just form a Proud Boys or an Oath Keepers. So kind of explain how they were operating both inside Russia and outside. Well, Joy, first of all, it's great to be here. And, and I think that you gave an excellent overview of, of the Wagner Group and its history. You know, I think sometimes people call the Wagner Group, uh, you know, a, a contracting company, private military contractors. This gives kind of the aura of the old Blackwater, which provided security for U.S. forces. It's far from that. The Wagner Group is, in effect, a, a proxy force for the Kremlin. It's closely tied to Russian military intelligence, and it really acts as kind of an overseas arm to do kind of the, a lot of the dirty work. 
that Vladimir Putin wants. And so, you know, the, what is what is, of course, interesting here is, you know, Prigozhin, who was very close to Putin, um, turned essentially into an oligarch running a paramilitary force, you know, got too big for his britches. He, you know, he's, he's way ahead of his skis. And there's been obviously a falling out. But the Wagner Group, you know, the way we saw it in the U.S. government and the intelligence community was certainly an arm of of kind of Russian practice of of hybrid warfare of operating in the gray zone, uh, and it's in particular in, you know, in countries such as Africa, um, really had a tremendous amount of influence. Well, I mean, and the thing is, what they were known for is brutality, right? Whether it was in African countries or in Syria or in the Donbass, you know, they were the ones helping sort of take that part of uh, of, of Ukraine that's abutted to Russia, that's right next to Russia, that they really, really, really want, or Crimea. We're looking at a map of it here, of, of a map here. Um, but what happens when a group like that, that is known for brutality, that has been operating basically, as you said, as like a sort of side mini army um, that was helpful to the Kremlin, if they turn on Vladimir Putin, can he still control those forces or do they answer to Prigozhin? Well, this is such a, a great question. And I'm going to give you the, you know, the, the answer, what any intelligence officer would is it depends. And, and frankly, right. there's a lot we have to say where, where we just say, simply say we don't know. And so, you know, one of the things, you know, right now is, is what happens to the Wagner forces and whether you, see, you hear all different types of numbers from 10,000 to 20,000 to 30,000. Where are they right now? Have they gone back to Russia? Are they, are they going back to Ukraine? Some of them, according to if you, if you believe, you know, the Kremlin are being offered, you know, integration into the Russian military if they sign a contract. That's going to be pretty difficult, of course. How do you integrate a military force that just days ago shot down and killed uh, several Russian Air Force pilots, destroyed some helicopters and transport aircraft? And so I'm not quite sure after the events of, of the last several days how they will integrate back in. They were very helpful in the past. You know, it, it, again, as Joy, as you noted, terrible brutality. This is not any kind of entity that the United States would be friendly with. Progosin hates the West. Um, uh, but what's interesting now is, you know, what to do with uh, an outfit, and this is for Vladimir Putin to decide, of, you know, 20, 30,000, some battle-hardened fighters, some of them convicts. What do you do with them? And that's going to be kind of the key question as, uh, as the days go by. I mean, the, the U.S. has a history of kind of looking the other way when, like, bad guys are fighting other bad guys. I think about Osama bin Laden, who was useful to the U.S. Uh, in some ways, or Mobutu, uh, when they got rid of the, the properly elected Congolese government. I mean, the U.S. has a history here of being like, bad guy versus bad guy, I, you know, maybe let them fight. Um, in this case, though, um, this is somebody who rode back, got very close to Moscow, was greeted like a liberator by regular Russians who were crowding around his vehicle, treating him as some sort of a hero, if he starts to bring the message back in, there, there's some video of it, that the Russia, that the war in Ukraine is a fraud. If he's vocalizing that, which, by the way, is a crime for which others, Vladimir Karamurza and other more, you know, heroic good guys have been put in prison. Do you think that that starts to break Putin's propaganda hold on the country? Do people start saying, wait a minute, if this guy says the war is BS, maybe it is BS. Could we be seeing something that could be the beginning of the end of Putin's control over Russia or even his administration? Well, well, first and foremost, you know, Prigozhin is a master on information operations. So we're talking about him running the Wagner Group as a paramilitary force. Don't forget that he also ran the Internet Research Agency, the troll farm that interfered in our election. He's indicted. Uh, as uh, as someone the U.S. government wants to bring to justice. I think there's a $250,000 reward for him. 
And so he, it, it, I mentioned this because he's very good with, you know, kind of propaganda information operations. And, you know, the message that he's sending now is resonating. And the message is not, you know, necessarily uh, that, that, you know, the, the U.S. or the Ukrainians are the good guys. It's that the, the Russian senior military leadership is corrupt. Um, right. They don't know what they're doing. And of course, he did say that this, you know, he, he kind of did puncture that hole in, in Putin's narrative of why this war was being fought. Now, Joy, why does this really matter? And, and, and to me, you know, uh, the, the, the you know, kind of the state of fighting forces anywhere has to do with morale. Now, Russian soldiers on the front lines in Ukraine, you know, they, they follow these telegram channels. That's the social that's in essence, the, in essence, a map. Uh, sorry, an app. And, uh, and so they're hearing Prigozhin's message. And when morale breaks, you know, it's, it's really important to build uh, for militaries. It's important to sustain. And it's once you lose it, it's very hard to regain that. And so I think that's the big question. Why would Russians want to die in the front lines? You know, we right. know the Ukrainians, what they're doing. They're resolved. They're fighting for their country. So I think what we're looking for now is there is there going to be any cracks in the Russian morale, which could be significant. I don't think this has any kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm not I'm not concerned or I don't think Putin would be concerned about the overall regime stability right now. He should right. be concerned about the the you know, the the credibility, um, the loyalty of the Russian military. And that's what, uh, you, know, you know, he's going to focus on right you know, in, in the days ahead. And that's why, of course, um, he's trying to clip Rogozin's wings. Yeah. Um, you know, look, uh, quoting uh, from a monster movie, let them fight. You know, bad guy versus bad guy. Look, uh, let them fight. Uh, Mark Polymeropoulos, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here. Uh, coming up, Trump still can't stop stop himself. He just can't stop himself from repeatedly confessing to committing federal crimes. But that doesn't seem to be hurting him with his rabid fan base. Uh, more next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. I had every right to have these documents, personal belongings, in boxes. Joe Biden didn't. Even Mike Pence didn't have that right. They weren't covered by the Presidential Records Act. I was because I was president. I'm probably the only person in history in this country that's been indicted and my numbers went up. Wow, it has to be hard for his lawyers when Donald Trump keeps confessing to the crime. As we told you before, the twice impeached, twice indicted former president is, is wrong each time that he claims to have had the right to take highly classified documents from the White House. He did. However, he was correct that following the news of his second indictment, his lead grew over his Republican presidential rivals, according to the latest NBC News polling. That may not be due to Trump's strength, but actually to the degradation of the once grand old party. That is the view of the conservatives conservative 
former federal judge Michael Ludig, a longtime star of the legal right, a perennial Supreme Court shortlister and an early mentor of Senator Ted Cruz. In a New York Times op-ed, Ludig writes, no assemblage of politicians except the Republicans would ever conceive of running for the American presidency by running against the Constitution and the rule of law. But that's exactly what they're planning. The stewards of the Republican Party have become so inured to their putative leader, they have managed to convince themselves that an indicted and perhaps even convicted Donald Trump is their party's best hope for the future. But rushing to model their campaign on Mr. Trump's breathtakingly inane template is as absurd as it is ill-fated. They will be defending the indefensible. If the indictment of Mr. Trump on Espionage Act charges, not to mention his now almost certain indictment for conspiring to obstruct Congress from certifying Mr. Biden as the president on January 6th, fails to shake the Republican Party from its moribund political senses, then it is beyond saving itself, nor ought it be saved. Joining me now is Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, MSNBC legal analyst, and professor at the University of Alabama School of Law. I take it, uh, Stuart, my friend, that you agree with Mr. Ludic. Oh, I think he's a little optimistic, actually. (laughs) Um, There's no other conclusion to come to, but that the party isn't worth saving. You know, nobody is forcing the Republican Party to support Donald Trump. There's a lot of other people out there. They want to support Donald Trump because Donald Trump best represents what they want to be. It is not a rule of law party. It is a power. It is a party that is about shifting America from a democracy to an autocracy. And that may sound alarmist. It's part of the challenge of how to talk about this. But that's just the absolute stone cold truth. And, and you know, the thing is, um, Stuart, that, you know, the way that Donald Trump speaks, he speaks like an evangelical. Right. Uh, he was at the Faith and Freedom Conference uh, over the weekend getting cheered and lauded and saying, I got it. I was indicted for you. Now, the you in question did not steal classified documents or foment an insurrection. He did. Right. You know, but he's saying I'm an indicted. That is like Jesus language, you know, as if my body is being broken for you. He speaks like that. And let's be clear, his base are white evangelicals. They lap that up. Um, and to the point where one evangelical leader had to come out and say, no, no, it's Jesus Christ we worship. When you got to say it, you know, this is worship, right? And I don't know how you break people out of something that is basically a religion. You know, this is a, a hallmark of uh, autocrats. If you read a book like by Ruth uh, Ben Diaz's brilliant book, Strongman, um, they become the state because there is no rule of law. There is just this person who will save us from chaos. And that's why there needs to be a constant in, uh, manufactured threat to America be it these caravans crossing border to the idea that these powerful forces out there like Canada are threatening America. So only this person can save us. It is a complete corruption of the American experiment. And if they're successful, it will be the end of the American experiment. Yeah. And I should say it is anti-Jesus language. It's sort of like Jesus in the bizarro world kind of language. Um, But let let me bring you in, Joyce, because all of this is happening in this weird context where Donald Trump's legal situation is getting worse and worse and worse. So you had a couple of rulings. You had the... um, 
seemingly very pro-Trump judge, um, Judge Cannon, Eileen Cannon, she denied the special counsel. They requested to hide the names of 84 potential witnesses um, that were testified. That's actually good news for journalists. So actually, I think we're for that. Um, it, but it does seem like the case is hardening against him and more cases seem to be teeing up. It isn't changing much, but on the legal front, things are getting worse, right? Yeah, absolutely. Things are getting worse. And if you're the special counsel, if you're any of the other prosecutors looking at Trump, you're just lapping up these television uh, appearances where he continues to confess sort of in slow motion, piling on a little bit more every time he appears on TV. You almost expect him at some point to say, oh, and by the way, you know, I still have more documents sitting in my bedroom (laughs) or in my sock drawer. He's become so effusive about it. But to Stewart's point, the real problem watching all of this is that you're considered an alarmist if you point out that this is more than just the end of the Republican Party, that what the government really will end up putting on trial in this case is very much a Republican Party that has failed in any meaningful way to reel in Trump, to reel in their support of Trump, or to tell their base the truth. Even at this late date, they still have the ability to say, These allegations that the government is bringing are true. Donald Trump is not fit to be the leader of our party. And their lack of willingness to do that is something, you know, that we should still consider shocking, even in an era where many of us think that we're past shock. Right. And I mean, the thing is, he's literally... He's literally robbing his supporters. I mean, he's turned his pack, which they think they're giving to his campaign. It's no, if you're paying his legal fees, y'all, this guy claimed he was a billionaire. We know he's not a billionaire, but he's real rich. And yet the little guy, these people who worship him and and say they won't leave the home without a red hat, Joyce, they're paying his legal fees. Down the road, could that form other legal problems if he's not being honest about the way he's raising money? You know, it could. It's tough to know just from the bare bones reporting that we've seen so far. But this is clearly the sort of thing that requires further investigation to see if it's legal or not. It's interesting to recall that one of the few times his base has been upset with him was when he was doing this fundraising thing where uh, it became an automatic monthly debit as opposed to just a one-time thing. That was one of the few times he experienced pushback. You've got to wonder what'll happen here. And Stuart, I'm going to give you the last word on this because, you know, Chris Christie got booed for telling the truth about Trump. So, and he's at 5%. He's, you know, he's somewhere. He's not nowhere. He's ahead of Nikki Haley and some of the others. But what does it say about the Republican Party that the next guy down is Ron DeSantis, who, who is running the most openly fascist campaign I think I've ever seen? And I'm saying that having covered Donald Trump running for president. That's the next guy down. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you're inside the Santa's war room, you've got to think of a way to get yourself indicted to get up ahead of Donald Trump. Um, you, you know, this just goes to my point that this is what the party wants to be. And it's a hard thing for a lot of us who worked in the party to accept that we helped create this market. But we did. And, and this, this is very purposeful by the party. It's not something they stumbled into. Their second choice is a guy who is worse than Trump. So it's a threat to what it means really to be an American. And I think we have to realize that and address it accordingly.
Yeah, it, it, it is hard to believe this is the same party uh, whose former uh, leader, Ronald Reagan, said open the borders. I mean, he literally said that. Uh, this is a whole different party from that one. Stuart Stevens and Joyce Vance, thank you both very much. Coming up, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Wesley Lowry joins me to talk about his new book, American White Lash. Seems apropos. And the shamefully predictable violence that follows every single advance in American civil rights. If you listen to former U.N. ambassador and current Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, whose father taught at an HBCU because white colleges wouldn't accept him as an Indian immigrant and who grew up to lead a state still flying the Confederate flag while she was governor, America's not racist. It is blessed. If you listen to Republican South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, another presidential candidate who, before Raphael Warnock's election, happens to have been the first black senator from the South since Reconstruction— There's no systemic racism, just racist individuals. America's relationship with race and racism and how we confront it lies at the very core of who we are as a country. It is a struggle, an ebb and flow with surges of hope and gutting bouts of brutal, violent resistance. Our history, a history that many Republicans choose to ignore, is littered with examples of that. Hundreds of years to force slavery came to an end after the gruesome and grinding Civil War, which ushered in the period of Black independence and Reconstruction. But Reconstruction, the brief period in American history when the federal government sought to secure and protect the legal rights of four million newly freed Black people, could not and would not last. That glimmer of hope came to a brutal and violent end during the Jim Crow era, where black freedom triggered white rage and violence marked by thousands of lynchings as white people lashed out at demands that black people be treated as equals. What they decide, we still are going to fight for segregated schools. We'll boycott any school that is integrated. It started off with one every place else. And then before before the thing's over, you're, you're invaded. The color take over the schools and force the white children out. They say that all of this here, what they call extremism, has got to go. I don't know anything wrong with being extremely right. It was the white people that has taken them out of the slums and have educated them, gave them what little education they've got. But remember, if you educate a dog, you've got an educated dog. That's some folks' grandparents. That that period came to a legal end with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But true equality remained beyond reach. The election of Barack Obama as the first black U.S. president was viewed by some as racial reckoning and seemed to renew the hope that maybe white Americans had come to terms with their own issues with race. Unfortunately, Obama's election seemed to reawaken America's long-simmering and visceral disdain for change. You see... President Obama was a direct undermining of the centuries-old status quo, which has always been embodied by white Christian men. Their grievances surged into public view with a seemingly unending string of racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic attacks fueled by a blossoming social media and a ravenous conservative media. 
the silent thing that nobody's really talking about here is the reason that he was saying the middle name Which so is? times. Hussein is because the connotation is that Barack Obama is a Muslim potentially. His father was a Muslim. For several hours, the Sikh temple of Wisconsin in Oak Creek was the scene of a tense drama after police received reports of gunfire. We're treating this as a domestic terrorist type incident. Here's a funny thing that we noticed the other day. People debate all the time about mass immigration. Our leaders demand that you shut up and accept this. We have a moral obligation to admit the world's poor, they tell us, even if it makes our own country poorer and dirtier and more divided. The defendant stated once inside the store, he opened fire using his AK-47, shooting multiple innocent victims. And here, here it is. The defendant stated his target were, quote, Mexicans. History doesn't repeat itself, uh, but it sure does rhyme. And many of the 2024 Republican candidates seem to want to replicate the worst parts of our past. That is next. In his new book, American White Lash, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry writes, White fears may be the defining force of our time, the undercurrent beneath the thrashing of our society, politics, and culture. As long as there are elements within our mainstream politics and media willing to cynically play to those fears, we can expect additional bursts of white racial violence. And Wesley Lowry joins me now. Uh, Wesley, I have my copy of the book. It is excellent. I am in the midst of reading it now. Uh, talk about that. The threats of white violence. Where are they coming from and why does it seem like they're so intense now? Of course. So great to be here, Joy. Um, and, you know, I, I started working on this book not long after the election of Donald Trump. And I was trying to figure out what my next target would be, what I'd be working on, what I'd be thinking about. I had been covering so much of the rise of Black Lives Matter and the protest movement during the Obama years. And headline after headline uh, on this beat was different than what we'd seen before. We were seeing Nazis rallying at the inauguration. We were seeing a Muslim woman attacked on a, on a train in Portland. Finally, the violence in Charlottesville or in Pittsburgh at Tree of Life Synagogue in El Paso, that there was attack after attack after attack, that it was very clear we were living in a moment of white racial grievance um, and white racial violence. And so, as you laid out in the segment leading into this, I, I tried to go back to the history and try to place the moment we're living in in a historical context that every time there have been moments of perceived black racial advancement, what we've seen is a tug of war back uh, from white supremacist forces that have met it with violence, right? And so when we look at this moment, we have a moment where we have lived through the election of a black president. We live through a moment where immigration is demographically changing the country in the way it's never been changed before, and where we have uh, conservative and political media, and as well as elected officials like our former president, who are willing to stoke this uh, fire, this anxiety, this frustration. You know, by the end of the Obama administration, 55 percent of white Americans polled believed they were discriminated against racially, right? That white Americans faced racial discrimination. That in that environment, the type of rhetoric and politics that we see leads to violence. Uh, I'm going to shut up in a second, but, you know, the, the last thing I'll say is this moment we're in has precedent. It's actually very similar to the 1920s, a century ago, mm -hmm. where there was a rise of a powerful movement that was not just upset about black freedom and equity, but was concerned about immigration, was concerned about urbanism and technology and, and income inequality. And that movement was called the Klan. Um, and it was one of the most powerful forces in American politics. And so yeah. we've lived through a nativist moment before, and here we are again. 
Right. And the, the movement that, that followed that one was called America First. And it was literally the same thing. Uh, you know, it, it is interesting because the, the political incentives, you know, you just had Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor mm-hmm. in Texas, which now officially the largest ethnic group there are Latinos. And he went there to say he would like to revoke the 14th Amendment somehow magically as president and end birthright citizenship. That is the amendment that was meant to make enslaved people citizens. Mm-hmm. That's the political incentives that we're working with in the Republican Party. I don't know how you reverse it when they believe that is the way to win. Of course. Well, and beyond that, though, we also have to consider that Hispanic immigrants, much like every immigrant group, are very likely going to, as they've shown up here and assimilate here, uh, have a decision to make. Do they want to try to assimilate into American whiteness the way the Italians did and the Irish did before that? Groups that were not seen as white and that now we would consider white ethnic, right? And in a—and that is the—in a lot of ways, the vitriol and the poison of a white supremacist society and a structure where— Black is bad and white is good, that when people show up, they have a choice to make of which they're going to be closer Mm -hmm. to, that they can define themselves and their own virtue by not being black. And so it's unsurprising that we're seeing that already, and it's unsurprising that we see additional political candidates, not just former President Trump, willing to engage in this type of rhetoric. And by the way, Ron DeSantis' people, Italian immigrants. You have made your point brilliantly. Wesley Lauer, as you always do. Wesley Lauer, author of American White Lash. I want my copy signed, please, when I see you next. Oh, you know I got you. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. And that is tonight's readout. Hey, everyone. It's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.